the Anesthesia Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to this month's Anesthesia Journal Podcast. We are delighted that this month to be joined by Dr Susanna Patty, who's an editor of Anesthesia Reports. Welcome Susanna, can you tell us all about yourself? Hi Mike, um, so I'm a consultant anesthetist at uh, the Christie Hospital in Manchester, so not too far away from you. My interests are sort of complex colorectal and gynae surgery, occasionally a bit of urology thrown in, um, perioperative medicine and I also anaesthetise paediatric patients for their proton beam therapy. So I've got quite a varied job plan. I'm also the department yeah. lead for sustainability and I've got quite a quite an interest there. So as a bit more background, I CCT'd about 18 months ago in the Northwest and before medicine I was a postdoctoral research scientist yeah. and my sort of area of interest was working on protein-protein and protein-carbohydrate interactions. So I did both a degree and a PhD before then studying for medicine. This month we're going to be talking about the February issue of the journal and you've picked three really nice papers for us to talk about. But before that, can you explain how you became involved with anesthesia reports and what attracted you to that position at the journal? With having quite an academic background, I've always been very interested in the process of putting together data for publication and actually if you do that from the from the ground up, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of work to get data ready for publication. And part of that process is obviously reading lots of other people's publications critically. So initially I applied for and was appointed as an associate editor um, on Anesthesia Journal. And I did that when I was still a trainee. And I gained some really useful experience there, got to see some look at some very interesting papers and sort of start sort of honing my skills as an editor. And then after a couple of years, I applied for a full editor position at Anesthesia Reports and was appointed a few months ago. Excellent. Congratulations. It's a really great journal. Obviously, we spoke with Craig last month, who's also a reasonably new editor at the journal. And there's some really excellent plans in place for Anesthesia Reports. And it's got a really bright future, and especially with people like you and Craig and Cliff involved and everyone else there. I'm really excited to see what, what comes next for Anesthesia Reports, and I'm sure it will continue to evolve and change as time goes on. You've picked three papers for us, and we should go straight into the first one, which is a really interesting study. It's a multi-centre cross-sectional study of burnout and its determinants among anaesthesia care providers in Switzerland. So I thought this paper was um, really topical in light of the ongoing industrial action by junior doctors in, in the UK. We're recording this during the longest period of strike action by the junior doctor workforce. I thought it was a, a good time to just take this moment to think about burnout and the effects of strikes. People often talk about, you know, talk about the, the state of the NHS and certainly NHS pressures at the moment. And just to take this moment to make sure that we're all making sure that we're okay and that we're asking our colleagues if they're okay. You know, are your juniors struggling financially if they're taking part in the strikes? If so, are they being directed to things like the BMA Strike Fund and the Doctors' Benevolent Fund for sources of help? For other support, the BMA Counselling Service is open 24 hours a day. Lots of further support resources and details available on the Association of Anaesthetists website, including details of things like the Fight Fatigue campaign. I think ultimately I found this study interesting as my impression is that Switzerland has sort of this kind of quite well-funded and well-staffed healthcare system, yet they're still reporting high rates of, of burnout and near burnout in their own in their own doctors. I looked into this and they've got more doctors than nurses per capita than we do in the UK. And interestingly, one of the highest number per capita of psychiatrists, yet their anaesthetic staff is still reporting these high levels of, of being at risk of burnout and actually burnout itself. Burnout 
isn't just limited to English-speaking countries such as the UK, Australia and America. Burnout's more of an occupational hazard associated with the, the work that we do. And that was, that was really interesting for me. But the other thing that I picked out was they surveyed both physicians and nurses. And although they had a lowish response rate overall, the response rate was lower, more for nurses than it was physicians. And there were some interesting differences between physicians and nurses as well as response rate. Can you think of any reasons why those differences were found? Yeah, I, I thought this I thought it was interesting too. And it's like um I mean, the authors talk about responder bias, and I don't know whether there's sort of so they they talk about particularly nurse, nurse anaesthetists, which is not really um, a sort of a tier that we have here in the UK, um, sort of excluding the sort of physicians associate debate, which I'm not going to go into here. Um, but it was just sort of whether whether because you have two different groups of people from essentially two different backgrounds, the sort of medical background and the nursing background, whether Nurthanistas were less willing to respond or perhaps didn't think it was um, applicable to them. Um, I mean, I know the invitation was sent out in an email, but was it that they didn't feel that the actual survey was marketed towards them? I guess another another issue was were they were they better were they better support are they better supported? So felt like they didn't need to engage in a a questionnaire talking to them about their sort of you know mental health. The other issue was is that this is just sent out by email the authors themselves said that those people anyone off sick or perhaps even disengaged due to suffering from burnout or near burnout may not actually respond and again this is sort of sort of institutional sort of cultural discomfort about reporting errors because the survey did ask them about whether they thought that they had made errors due to due to fatigue or um, or feeling burnt out, um, and I don't know whether there were sort of differences between how doctors and nurses feel that they're able to admit to mistakes. So those those were sort of my initial my initial thoughts. I don't think the the authors didn't make didn't particularly themselves have a good reason as to the as the different different response rates. They used um, an interesting method for measuring burnout, called a Maslach burnout uh, inventory. Have you ever heard of this before, or, or seen its use in other studies? I hadn't. I hadn't heard it used, it's used before. It has been used in previous German studies. I think there were three previous studies that had used it, and I think in terms of that, I think that's that's quite important. Is that you're using something that has been validated three times before sort of in culturally in that population that you're asking as well, because there are obviously yeah. cultural differences to how, how people respond to things. So I think using something that was perhaps that we didn't we don't use or isn't internationally validated is always it's always a slight red flag. But also when you're asking essentially a psychological questionnaire, those questions need to be sort of validated within the own culture of the people that you're you're asking them. Otherwise you're not going to get the answers that you want. One of the themes that came out of the paper for me was about a particular modifiable group of factors that relate to burnout. And this comes out time and time again, that often we think about the individual, but many of the factors that lead to burnout relate to the workplace, particularly perceived lack of support from um, uh, employers. With that in mind, and with this evidence that we have here that workplace factors are really important, what can employers better do to mitigate against it? I think seeing in this study, there were sort of two groups within this. There were trainees and consultants, and both have essentially psychological stressors. Some of them, some of these things are the same, and some of these things are different. Um, obviously, with sort of trainees, you have things like exam stress and you know, regularly rotating around 
which can actually lead to feelings of sort of isolation and loneliness because people are quite often moving hospitals, working with new teams on a daily basis and, and can feel quite unsettled. In terms of consultants, the job is slightly different and we, we are very sort of reliant on things like support from colleagues and support from management. Um, I think any group of people need to feel that they're listened to and that their concerns are taken seriously. Um, and that is, I, I would say, a, a fairly reasonable cause of stress. Um, things like you know workload and time appropriate time given to non-clinical work not overbooking theatre lists and it comes to sort of the clinical work the, the stresses are I guess fairly similar for for trainees and consultants we're sort of continually again I keep using the word stresses but we're continually exposed to multiple stresses and there is this sort of theory of sort of um, micro traumas. We, we get involved as, as part of anesthetics in quite a lot of traumatic things. We go to resus, we deal with traumas, we deal with cardiac arrest, we deal with you know, increasingly complex and comorbid patients and, and the very complex decision-making behind that. Um, and there is this theory that sort of this continual exposure to micro traumas actually sort of essentially psychologically wears you down. And I think in anesthesia, because of the nature of the job we do, we are all at very high risk of that. How our, how our employer mitigates against that, I, I don't think they do. I think they just, I think there are, there are simple things that, that need to be done well. We need access to rest facilities. We need abilities to sort of take break from our lists and take breaks from our day to actually have a rest, have some food, something to eat. Very simple things people can help with while you know, I don't think anyone particularly has a solution at the moment for the fact that, you know, we are ex essentially repeatedly exposed to these sort of micro traumas and, and regular stresses. Yeah, much more work to do in this area. Absolutely. This paper is um, a stepping stone along that way. And I really hope that our readers will take the messages on board and that this paper gets disseminated widely. Mm -hmm. um, the, the second paper that you chose uh, is from two other Manchester-based anaesthetists, previous president of the association, Dave Whitaker, and J.P. Lomas as well from Bolton, who we all know really well. And this is about pre-filled syringes. And this topic seems to come up time and time again. And whenever we publish a paper about pre-filled syringes, it always generates a lot of interest and, and people tend to, on the whole, be supportive. Okay, well, I wasn't I wasn't intending for there to be a particular Manchester bias in this in this podcast today. But for me, this topical, it, this is quite topical because um, I think locally we've just had the go ahead to implement them. And it has, it has taken a bit of time and a bit of, a bit of effort to do that. So pre, I think pre-filled syringes sort of fulfill this like sort of holy grail triad of it. They're sustainable, they're cost effective and they have the great potential to improve patient safety. Um, in terms of sort of anaesthetists, you know, drawing up drugs, you know, I find particularly at the beginning of the day, I anaesthetise a lot of big all day cases. The mental load is really high at certain points of the day. And I think for me, like the pinch point is first thing in the morning when I've got all my drugs to, to draw up, equipment to check. And, you know, also, you know, it's a time when I guess the most interruptions are happening as people are coming in and out of the anaesthetic room. So for me, that sort of that mental load when you're when you're drawing up essentially what are some of the most dangerous drugs that you're going to use is it is a big is a big push for me. And this editorial sort of goes a little bit further and it and it pushes for sort of further rollout, sort of citing things like pre-filled antibiotic syringes to reduce nursing time spent making up antibiotics, which is a you know considerable amount of their of their day. So I think it's sort of two things of you know, particularly I was looking particularly from the sort of safety and sustainability thing, but then 
if you actually look beyond anesthesia, I think there is also a role for pre-filled syringes in other areas as well. Yeah, much like uh, the paper we're talking about with burnout, there's much here we can do to improve things for both ourselves and for patients. And the advantages that are highlighted in the paper are very difficult to argue against. Can you think of any disadvantages of pre-filled syringes? The, the long-standing issue has been that if you think about most of the drugs that we draw up, we draw them up in glass vials, and that's because the glass itself is 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 basically there so that the drug doesn't extract or leach into the glass. Pre-filled syringes are often are often, but not always, um, sort of plastic or composite materials, and you need a plunger, obviously, to be used as syringe, and that pl- plunger needs a lubricant which is often sort of silicon oil so there are actually lots of surfaces onto which the drugs can extract interact or sort of leach onto so there is a possibility that your drug in your syringe is is being affected by being in that pre-filled syringe so this you know can affect the drug it can also reduce the shelf life of of the drug so that's that's the main issue that i think the drug companies have have tried to have tried to deal with I think when you're introducing any new drug in any new packaging, it's a, it's a source of constant annoyance to me when a drug that I use regularly, you know, comes in a different package. So it, when whenever you've got anything new and you, drugs that we use every single day start being packaged differently, you're always going to have that initial sort of change to practice and the change and, and you're reaching for a different a different looking syringe. And also those things like the vasopressors, particularly for, for us at metopyramidol, some, some trusts use metopyramidol in a different concentration to which it's standardly provided in the pre-filled syringes. I think when thinking about extending pre-filled syringes to things like antibiotics, and you're going to have, you think about the number of antibiotics, different types of antibiotics that are available in the wards, the packaging needs to be sufficiently different to avoid, to avoid a drug error. You don't want to be picking up the wrong syringe and giving someone with a penicillin allergy a penicillin-containing drug. Most commonly, we use refilled, pre-filled syringes in sort of recess, recess scenarios, and we tend to, in those scenarios, empty the entire contents of the syringe into the patient because they are a single-dose syringe, whereas the ones we're talking about using in anesthesia, we will still be aliquoting that drug into the patient. We would not be using the entire content of the syringe. We quite often use vasopressors such as metaraminol as infusions and the pre-filled syringes that are available of metaraminol don't fit in the syringe pumps and actually that'd be a very expensive way of actually providing metaraminol so there is still going to be some areas where you will be drawing up the drug that you need because you need it in a greater quantity. The use of pre-filled syringes we have to be quite careful in terms of human factors and patient safety that we don't just assume that they eliminate all the barriers to error and to patient safety instance. This certainly might eliminate some of the steps. They don't do that in one unified way that eliminates all of the possible ways in which patients can be exposed to uh, drug errors. But at the same time, the, the thing that will always get thrown at proponents of pre-filled syringes is cost. And I always find that interesting because although the cost of these syringes may be higher than preparing the drugs by the initial individual anaesthetist on the day of surgery, is that possibly a false economy? I think I think you're right, Mike, and I think this is the the point that the editorial makes. Anesthetic drugs are indeed relatively cheap compared to um, some of the other drugs available or used in the NHS. I tried to find it for this um, for this talk, but there's a there was a great infographic I saw recently about the sort of the top twenty drugs in the NHS by cost, and the tops of the list are things like the biological biological agents that we use in autoimmune disease and we use in cancer. Um, and I think saline in the NHS was up there in the top 20, but anaesthetic drugs weren't. 
So I think, you know, in terms of what we use, it is a drop in the ocean compared to the NHS overall drug expenditure. And as this paper states, that medication harm is the greatest cause of preventable harm in the NHS. About 6% of patients suffer preventable harm and incidents related to two drugs are the greatest cause. And it's about represents about 25% of events. Um, and they make the point, interestingly, again, it's a sort of highest ever medical NHS medical negligent payout of £24 million pounds was caused by the mix-up of two unlabeled 10 mil syringes, which was sadly one had glue in it and one had angiography dye. And the glue got substituted in the angiography dye. So I I think overall cost is not a reason not to implement um, pre-filled syringes. You know, they they do have a very well-established safety profile. I mean, I've not been a doctor in a time where we've had to dilute adrenaline in a resus situation. It's always come in pre-filled syringes. Um, Pre-filled syringes are an essential piece of kit along with the defib that gets wheeled in 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 a resus situation. So maybe then pre-filled syringes are the way to go. Finally, you chose a paper looking at aerosol generation during CPR, which I found absolutely fascinating. As anaesthetists, we're regularly involved in in cardiac arrests as part of... I've spent many years myself carrying various cardiac arrest bleeps as an anaesthetic reg. We get called to resus to deal with, you know, to intubate patients in cardiac arrest. And many of us actually teach on the resus council courses as well. I, I spent a lot of time on the resus team during the pandemic so I'm very much aware of that sudden change that we had wearing PPE for cardiac arrests I thought this this was really interesting because we didn't really have huge amount of evidence before then so there were some there were some studies sort of retrospectively looking at rates of sort of healthcare worker infection with things like SARS and MERS before the COVID-19 pandemic Um, but we didn't really have hard evidence about CPR and um it's it's role in aerosol producing i think i think this you know it's definitely a question and i think we're very fortunate the resus council guidance very quickly said that we should be using ppe in resus situations um, and did so very quickly yeah this is the first study of its kind and it's from a research group who are very expert in this area and the study itself is very difficult to do and they use some animal data uh, to help validate real world patient data but in terms of the findings and conclusions was there anything in here that was at odds with other aerosol work that we've seen previously well i think it's been quite interesting is that over the past sort of sort of few months particularly in the past year or so as we've seen sort of this gradual sort of peeling back of of what's being defined as an aerosol generating technique um so we've certainly seen that um evidence now that Positive pressure ventilation with an LMA doesn't seem to generate significant aerosols. Even when you introduce a leak into the system, we're still not getting significant aerosols sort of above sort of talking or voluntary coughing. Tracheal intubation itself, um, even when you extubate someone and make them cough, you still get more aerosols when someone voluntarily coughs when they're fully awake. And even face mask ventilation produces fewer aerosols than sort of tidal breathing and, and face mask ventilation, even the resus council have turned around and said that, yes, we, sh- we should be doing that and you don't need necessarily to put PPE on to face masks ventilate somebody in a resource situation. But what they were waiting for is, is this data about chest compressions. And I think this shows, whereas all the other evidence has shown that actually the things that we were really worried about don't generate significant aerosols, it's saying that chest compressions and the actual defibrillation itself both produce significant aerosols. Well, wow, it's fascinating. And I guess an important conclusion is that in the setting of CPR in a patient with suspected or confirmed high-risk pathogen, 
infection, that the responder is at, is at risk from being in close proximity to that patient, and more so when rescue breaths are given, and they should probably be wearing able, airborne precautions. And I guess all that all makes kind of logical sense in this case. I think yes, it does. And I think I think I remain grateful to sort of Resource Council UK that they were very sensible at the beginning of the pandemic and did say that we did need to have level three PPE during CPR, even though even though the data wasn't totally there to support it. The overall sort of the overall message of this is that you know if you are doing CPR on a patient, securing the airway and using an inline filter to and with a you know the to remove any sort of potential virus particles is actually very important um, and is protective to the healthcare workers surrounding the patient. And I think, but yeah, there is there's ultimately this sort of ethical angle to the discussion as, as we all know that it takes a long time or takes some time to put on PPE. Um, and so there was always this argument that it was delaying chest compressions, but we have to remember going back to your basic resource training that, that securing the scene and scene safety is the first priority in all life support guidance and you know, we should be doing no harm, but we should also not be exposing us and other members of the healthcare team to harm. So I think this has been, it is logical. And I think this is the the first piece of sort of hard, hard evidence that has, has gone to support those recommendations that, that CPR and particularly chest compressions and defibrillation do generate aerosol and that we do need to make sure that healthcare workers are protected. Well, so that's free. Excellent papers covered in half an hour, all of which have really important clinical conclusions. So burnout is common and we need to do more to support the workforce and mitigate against burnout. And then we talked about pre-filled syringes and we're both in agreement that one day in our careers, it will be standard to provide anesthesia with pre-filled syringes and, and that'll be good for doctors and good for patients. And then finally, in the setting of CPR, Airborne precautions should be used uh, in high-risk patients. So three really important conclusions there from three great papers from the February issue. Uh, Susanna, it's been really, really great to talk to you. Join us next month as we'll be talking through another issue. But in the meantime, we've got other papers where we'll be interviewing authors live, including our supplement, a great contribution from the Star Surge Collaborative, and various other papers where we'll be talking through the key conclusions with the authors themselves and getting the message out there to you. So thank you very much. And we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. The Anesthesia Podcast.